Welcome to this week's Quill Podcast, recorded on 30 August 2021. For those of you tuning in, thank you for joining today's podcast. The Quill Podcast is a product of the Lemieux Center for Public Policy at Palm Beach Atlantic University, located in West Palm Beach. The mission of the Lemieux Center for Public Policy is to provide a space for reasoned, thoughtful, and civil discourse on pressing public issues confronting Florida, the United States, and the world. For those of you tuning in for the first time, my name is Robert Lloyd. I'm Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences and Executive Director of the Lemieux Center. I am honored to be your host for today's discussion. We are in for a treat today. Uh, We are in our studio with former U.S. Ambassador to the Dominican Republic, Robin Bernstein. So a warm welcome. Thank you. We have a number of issues to discuss. Um, Some of you may recall Ambassador Bernstein was on a, uh, I guess we called it a Quill TV program, uh, where we had five American ambassadors who had served in different areas, and all women, who discussed about their time as ambassadors, and that was held in March 22nd, 2021. So if you check out our website, you should be able to find that information if you want to watch what was really a fascinating discussion. But a little bit of a background. Ambassador Bernstein served as an ambassador uh, in the Dominican Republic from 2018 to 2021. She is a successful businesswoman, philanthropist, and humanitarian. She is a recipient of many awards, including the prestigious Order of Duarte from the Dominican President Luis Abinader and the Women in Leadership Award from the Executive Women of the Palm Beaches. We will be discussing a number of items today. So just starting um, out, um, Ambassador Bernstein, what is an ambassador? I am so glad you asked me that question because so many people ask that question. They know that there are U.S. ambassadors, uh, but they really don't know what it is we do. The U.S. ambassador is responsible primarily for the safety and security of Americans living, working, or visiting the country that they happen to be posted in. For example, you recently may have seen what's happening in Afghanistan, how the ambassador, uh, the embassy tried to get the people out. uh, And basically, that's what we do. We are responsible for the safety and security of Americans living there or visiting. In the DR, there were 250,000 Americans living there. Uh, we, so during the first COVID um, tranche of people, we actually ferried about 30,000 Americans out before the airports closed last year. We had to connect, we had to connect with the airlines. We had to get, make sure that people were alerted. So we were responsible for, number one, assessing uh, the safety level of a country. So, for example, the countries are ranked um, from one to four in terms of safety, four being the worst, which is do not travel, uh, which if you would think of Afghanistan as a four. Uh, And then during COVID, uh, they they also added that into the mix. So uh, if you were saying, oh, maybe I'll have my wedding in the Dominican Republic, you can actually go to www.state.gov forward slash travel and then you put in the country that you want to visit and it will actually tell you the safety and security concerns the levels and if there are none they will tell you that so one being the best and four being the worst 
that's safety and security. Uh, if people were to become ill and had to be medevaced out, they would contact the State Department. If, unfortunately, people pass away uh, when they're on vacation or living there and we have to, uh, we help them, um, unfortunately, either with burial issues or contacting the family if needed, or, uh, you know, there were several cases where we had to make sure that the body, we assisted a family in getting the body, the remains uh, of somebody were deceased in the ocean or something. You know, we have to get the, 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 the remains back to the family. So uh, also we uh, are one of the biggest, we, meaning the Dominican Republic, was one of the biggest issuers of visas. People work here. Uh, in the United States or other countries, they travel here. And when we uh, issued, I think at one point, and I'm, uh, I'm clouding now because of, of COVID, but I think we, is- we were the biggest issuer of visa- visas behind Mexico in the Western Hemisphere. We issued about 200,000 visas a year. So say, again, we want to make sure that people traveling to the United States are vetted properly. Um, there are things in the internet, you know, there are alerts on people. We don't want to send people that are bad or narco traffickers or, you know, criminals uh, to the United States. So our embassy did a lot of vetting. Also, equally as important is ambassadors speak for the president of the United States. So the president, the national security policy will prepare policy, transmit that to the State Department, and through a series of what's called cables or demarches, uh, we will receive formal instructions. Like They'll say, you know, deliver this at the highest level to the president, and you have to deliver the message. Um, so that is a very, very exciting part of, of what an ambassador does. Of course, there are many, many other uh, things that the ambassador does, but primarily the safety and security of Americans and speaking uh, for the president, I would say, are the two most int- uh, important, as well as the State Department will give you guidelines. It's called an integrated country strategy. And you are, as the ambassador, it is under your charge to uh implement that policy that's given to you either by the administration, National Security Council, or the Department of State. Okay. So you'd mentioned the visas and the number of Dominicans who visit the United States. What other sort of commercial or economic ties bring the two countries together? Well, the United States is the partner of choice for the Dominican Republic. We are, we, the United States, is the primary uh, trading partner. We have a number of uh, free trade zones where uh, there are tax incentives in the Dominican Republic, but primarily they, uh, they, the DR will export gold, um, uh, automotive parts, medical devices, tobacco is, is huge. Of course, uh, anybody that has smoked a Dominican cigar probably will never forget it because of the fine quality. Rum uh, is, is a big export as well. And Florida is, I believe, the number one state that wherein we export and import from. So very close ties, very, very important very, position yes. as an ambassador. Uh, switching gears a little bit, but not too much. Um, you and I were both involved in the Florida Dominican Republic Higher Education Summit. Uh, which was one of your initiatives. I was invited to participate in. Sort of what was the genesis behind that? Um, the, uh, when I first became an ambassador, I set, I, after studying and talking to a lot of people, I set up 
my four priority list, and I like to call it side, safety and security, which we just discussed, uh, investment and trade, which we briefly touched on, uh, D, disaster preparedness, which I'm sure we'll get to, and E, n- uh, with the fourth tenet of my priorities was education. Unfortunately, the Dominican Republic, when I got there, was a, there were about, out of 144 ranked countries, the Dominican Republic ranked I'll say about 140 plus out of 144 nations uh, in the quality of their primary education. Uh, when I got there, um, the uh, it was only mandatory to attend school up to eighth grade. And I felt that uh, education really is the key out of poverty. Uh, there's so much... Po- potential. So one of the first things I did beside having a trade mission uh, with the Chamber of Commerce and Enterprise Florida was the Florida Education um, uh, series of the, uh, the the Higher Education Summit. The Higher Education Summit. Thank you. And we had about 20 uh, schools participating, and I think we probably set up about 10 or 12 relationships as a result of it, Palm Beach Atlantic College uh, being one of them. And it was so exciting to me that the, the people, the participants were so excited. And um, Dr. Lloyd, I'll let you uh, talk a little bit about some of the successes of that, but uh, let me just say that uh, we forged relationships, whether it be FIU or uh, FSU or University of Miami, e- each school kind of found their own niche. And I'm very proud of that. This is a relationship that will endure. I completely agree. There are, there are two parts of it. And we were talking about the relationship between the DR and the United States, um, Florida universities. One of the things is being one of the representatives from Florida is in Florida, we really don't talk to each other that much. So we went to the Dominican Republic and wound up talking to each other. And it was like a conference for us, too. It's like, oh, that's what you're doing. I didn't know that. So I, that was an unexpected bonus uh, just to meet colleagues across the state. No, an interesting thing that came out of it is from Palm Beach Atlantic is uh, colleagues in the School of Arts and Sciences were in the oceanography department were taking a look at medical waste drift. And this is, uh, unfortunately, it's medical waste that washes up on the shore of Florida, Flor- Florida beaches. And it can be anywhere from drugs to syringes, things you just don't want to have on your beach. So our colleagues in the university were taking a look at where does this stuff come from? And they've been doing a lot of research. So when I came back, I said, there's this initiative going on. And I had met colleagues at Dominican universities, including a school in Santiago, the second largest city. And so I put everyone together and and a grant came out of the State Department and we applied and the other school applied. We got it. And so we've been uh, sending out drift cards to see the currents and the wind patterns. And so if you see a little orange card washing up on the shore, please take a look at the address, call it in so we know where it came. And the information's on the orange card. You cannot miss it. How, a, can I just yeah. stop and ask you a question? So if somebody is listening to this podcast and they want to get involved because climate, you know, the climate and the environment is so important to so many of us. What would they do or what would a student do? How would they, you say, call us or, you know, is there a website or what's the telephone number somebody would call to get involved? Thank you. That's a good question. A good segue. Yes. If you're interested in learning more about this, uh, you can contact us at Palm Beach Atlantic. A good contact name is James Knapp with a K. So James Knapp, K-N-A-P-P. And 
If you want to email him, it's james underscore knapp, K-N-A-P-P, at pba.edu. James Knapp at pba.edu. James underscore Knapp at pba.edu. So he can connect you, um, and you can look for the orange cards, too, and get information from that and call us in. But if you'd like to help us um, on that project, feel free. Um, We'd love it if you want to support financially or in other ways. Please contact us. Thank you for the little... Um, public service. <laughs> I was going to say public service announcement. Yeah, the commercial. The um, the oh, so the um, so the cards have been released off Florida, and the Dominican Republic uh, is going to release cards off their shores pretty soon. So we'll have all the data coming in. So learning about where does this waste come from, and trying to the ultimate goal is to try to address the issues of medical waste on the beach. The so that was one aspect that came out of this this summit and I'm, as you mentioned other universities have taken it in different ways and those relationships are continuing so i think that's that's definitely a legacy of your time thank you there's ambassador uh, a couple other things here um kind of we talked about some of your initiatives the the four initiatives that you had but sort of day to day if you could walk us through a kind of a day in the life of an ambassador in the dominican republic well uh, it's going to be a long day. <laughs> I normally would get up about six o'clock, and uh, I didn't speak Spanish when I when the president uh, said you're going to the Dominican Republic. So I had to teach myself Spanish, and I hired myself uh, one of my my daughter's science uh, uh, Spanish teachers, uh, and she worked with me twice a week. But I basically I read books. Uh, so I'd get up every morning when I got to the Dominican Republic and I'd read six newspapers. Not that I could understand everything, but I felt that I, always, I had a little pocket translator and I always felt that if I could read the headlines uh, and kind of get the drift of what the policy was, I would be able to speak to it or, or uh, inquire more. So I'd get up, I'd read all six papers with my wonderful hot steaming Santo Domingo coffee, which is also an export, as well as sugar cane. Uh, so, you know, I, I supported the uh, our agricultural exchanges. Very uh, Sugar cane is a major, major um, uh, agricultural product, as well as coffee. And then I'd leave around 7 o'clock in the morning for the embassy. It was about a 35-minute drive. And I could do a lot of my uh, pre-reading for uh, meetings. I co- or I could. S- I had a lot of paperwork to sign, so I could sign paperwork. But I usually got into the embassy around quarter of eight, uh, eight o'clock in the morning, where I'd meet with my um, my. my they, they call them an OMS, an office management specialist. It's basically my assistant, and then my deputy chief of mission. I was the chief of mission. The ambassador is known as the chief of mission. Your deputy is your deputy chief of mission. And I'd meet with him just to find out really, you know, he kind of uh, took care of what was happening on the inside. He'd bring me up to speed if there was any issues, uh, especially concerning Floridians. I always like to be apprised uh, of them if there were any. Uh, the other thing is ambassador, we had a law enforcement working group um, I, if like narco trafficking, we got, we were, we got the biggest narco trafficker in the, in the Caribbean in 20 years during my tenure. I was pretty proud of that. 
Um, and then we'd meet with the entire team, of the head of every team. I had about 800 employees in Embassy Santo Domingo, but uh, under your chief of mission uh, team, you've got uh, Department of Agriculture, Department of Commerce, you've got Department of Defense, um, Homeland Security, FBI, CIA, the whole alphabet soup of all the agencies you hear about in Washington. And we talk on Monday morning, especially we would follow the policies. We'd talk about what had transpired over the weekend, and we would really set the agenda of what our plans were for the week. If I had any speeches that had to be given, we we talk about prep for that. And then we'd really break up into individual parts. I would leave the embassy usually around 4 or 5 o'clock, and then we'd go to some type of reception uh, from another embassy or another country's you know, or, or even meeting with ministers during the week. I could meet with a foreign minister, several ministers of whatever was the topic of the week. Uh, I, I gave several speeches during the week. And then I'd finally get home, maybe around 8 o'clock, where I'd see my husband. Uh, sometimes we'd go out to dinner or we'd eat at the residence. And my daughter, who took a two-year hiatus and, and was living with us to help. So that's the day of an ambassador. One of the things I remember from your, one of your days as an ambassador is we were at um, sort of the banquet, I guess, the reception for the higher education, and there was a presidential election coming up. And, oh, yes. And the um, there was this gaggle, I'd have, I guess, it's of reporters around you. You were in a room, and I was just kind of sitting on the side watching this. So there you are in the middle, and there's this huge TV crews and reporters, and they're all, and they're trying to get you off topic and getting to presidential politics, and you're you know, you're staying on focus, and it was just quite the sight. Um, and I thought you did very well at that, Thank by you. the way. Well, that's one thing you do learn as an ambassador is how to pivot is, is really the diplomatic <laughs> word, not evade the question, but I wanted to talk about education, and they wanted me to talk about who my favorite uh, candidate was. And I said, no, I said, let's talk about what the Dominican people really want to hear about. And, and I'm glad you brought that up. They want their children to go to school. They want their children to have an education. So let's talk about why we're here today. And you're right, I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so since we pivoted on to education yet again, which is good, um, you, you're involved in a project called SAFE. Correct. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. It, this was another one of my initiatives that actually grew out of a, a breakfast that we had with major league baseball players. And what happened was I was, we were sitting at a big, uh, at the residence and we had a, uh, Pedro Martinez and who also came to the education center and yes. David Ortiz or big poppy Robinson Cano from the Mets. We had Vlad Guerrero and, uh, we had uh, some representatives from, uh, MLB, and I was very concerned that younger children were being taken out of schools, and they only ended up with a an eighth grade education if they were lucky. And my biggest concern, and my husband's biggest concern, being a big baseball fan, is what happens if they don't make it in in major league. Uh, what people may or may not know is eleven and a half percent of MLB currently is made up of Dominicans. It is their ticket out. It is their dream. But their dream is to become a baseball player. It's not necessarily to get a college education or what ha they, you know, the question never is brought up to them, well, what happens if you get injured? What happens if you get cut? 
So uh, what happens if you blow all your money? And one of the things that is in this new legislative initiative, and that's SAFE, um, is to get an education, a high school education, perhaps a college education, to take 20% of the money, that the signing bonus, and put it into a deferred uh, fund uh, in a bank for five years until they're 21, so nobody can touch it. No scout or agent or parents or they can't they can't just blow the money. But if they don't make it by the time they're 21, at least they have a pot of money sitting in there um, uh, waiting for them that they can invest in a business. And also one of the things that we're really proud of is that uh, before I left, the commissioner of baseball there and the president of their Senate said that they were going to do some legislation to guarantee this, as well as every student that signs with the MLB will be granted a college education in the Dominican Republic. And uh, also in SAFE, we were able, as I showed you this book, uh, we, through USAID, we worked with uh, Vlad Guerrero, who is a Hall of Fame member of the uh, Dominican member of the Hall of Fame. We did a book for him, which will reach 100,000 students a year. It will be in 400 schools, primary schools, but it really talks about his journey. And here's a gentleman who only had a fifth grade education. And so education is very important to him. But what we learned about SAFE is if you work with people like uh, you know, Pedro Martinez, the great Pedro Martinez, who has his own school, or Vlad Guerrero, or David Ortiz, they are very concerned about education. And we're so proud to work with MLB and USAID to, to have these types of books. Now, is there some place, if uh, listeners are interested in taking a look at that information, that they could find it? Uh, you know, it's called, uh, it's through USAID. U.S. Agency and, for International Development. Yep, uh, Agency for International Development, and UNIBE, which was also, we partnered with the school, and it's called Project, uh, Proyecto Leer, which means Project Read, and it's called Vladimir Un Guerrero, or Vlad, uh, Vladimir uh, A Warrior, and it is, it is his story, and it is a beautiful book that, uh, you know, that you can share with uh, primary school readers. So Vladimir Guerrero. So take a look at it, and you can probably spell it out in Spanish, and it'll pop up on a right. Google search uh, if you're more interested. It's kind of a, a – I'm looking at the booklet now. It's kind of a catchy comic book um, type image on the front. Um, so I think uh, it's uh, – and it says on the top, uh, the light uh, connection of hope. So anyway, it's USAID and UNIVE. So – Let's switch gears again. Okay. Thank you for that. Perfect. I think I think we're, we're covering all your four areas. Yes. <laughs> Drop, don't forget disaster preparedness. So yes, uh, unfortunately, uh, hurricane has struck New Orleans, and so disasters are on our mind. Uh, a place like Louisiana, of course, Katrina. Um, the United States has a lot of resources we can afford to put in protection for a major city like New Orleans. What about the Dominican Republic? Not as not as wealthy, maybe not as many resources. How do they deal with disasters? Um, well, as it is a developing country, but uh, when we um, when I started looking at the, it's eight hundred miles of coastline, 
I mean, it's almost like the state of Florida, if you think about it, but it's mostly coastal. And the difference between Florida and the Dominican Republic, the Dominican Republic is located on an island, an island of Hispaniola, which we share with Haiti, which uh, was also on a fault line, and you saw what just recently happened with Haiti. So an impending disaster when there is a hurricane, a major hurricane that would be projected to hit. You just can't drive off the island uh, like you can in Florida. So one of the things that I felt very strongly about having come out of Florida and actually living on the island across across the way in Palm Beach, I'm very attuned to hurricanes and the disaster. I just actually, we just uh, evacuated our daughter Allie out of New Orleans. She just finished her master's degree at Tulane University, so she had to evacuate. So I know that that you know the tremendous the trauma and the stress when when your home is destroyed, uh, and that was one of the things I wanted to do was leave another legacy with helping the people uh, in the different areas, the private sector, the public sector, to increase their disaster aware, uh, preparedness. So we worked with, uh, it's called the American Chamber, AmCham DR, and we, we had speakers from FEMA and uh, just, just really top um, their, their, their disaster preparedness. Uh, it's called the COE. It's it, 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 for an emergency alert system. We worked with Southern Command, Admiral Fowler, at, who was a fantastic person. And we were able to get three field hospitals, these mobile field hospitals. You may have seen some of them uh, popping up in different areas, talking about field hospitals. Originally, it was like a tent. You think about MASH or tent, you know, where they'd operate. But we had seen this wonderful technology at the Jack Nicholas Children's uh, hospital in in South Florida, and we I said we need some field hospitals in the DR, uh, just in the event that there would be a major disaster or an earthquake, which uh, are it was, both. It was prescient, right? And uh, w- when I went to talk to Admiral Fowler about why I thought we needed some uh, deployed. Uh, in the DR, I originally thought, well, we could store it if there's a, an issue. Uh, you know, you can just inflate it and just move it or move it and then inflate it, never thinking that there would be another major earthquake in Haiti, never thinking that there would be COVID. And the three field hospitals arrived last summer just in time for COVID. And uh, they we, we were able to deploy the three field hospitals. They each had uh, ventilators attached to them. They're totally air conditioned. And again, we were able to save lives as well as do disaster preparedness seminars for a lot of the private sector where people started looking at their disaster preparedness. Their hospitals, when I looked at the hospitals, a lot of them were, weren't even making a a level c you know like a b c a being the best well they were at level b and c which their hospitals i was worried about the hospitals being destroyed short of what you just saw in um at oxner hospital in new orleans where the roof blew off people were sheltering there they have no generators so they have no electric i mean the the these are this these are critical. People die when you don't have adequate hospitals. So we um, we that's that was the other area that I thought that we made a significant difference in people's lives. Yeah, and 
Um, you're probably more in touch with the COVID situation than yes. DR. How, what's the status of COVID there and the response <clears throat> of the people in the government? Right now, the Dominican, uh, I, I checked the other day, they were at a level uh, three. Remember I talked about four being the worst, so the State Department, which means reconsider travel. doesn't say do not travel, but last summer when we were there, it was a four pretty much for almost the entire time. President Abinader did an amazing job, uh, you know, with he did, uh, um, what do you got there? Uh, I can only think in Spanish now. Curfews, <laughs> um, that, because we had so many curfews, but he did a really, really good job. Uh, unfortunately, he, they were only able to get uh, the Sinovac or the Sinopharm, the Chinese vaccine, which have been proven only about 40% effectiveness. And I would say right now they're probably on par with a lot of the other countries in the Caribbean. I mean, it, it's not perfect. The eastern part of the Dominican Republic has been amazing, like Punta, the Capcana, the Punta Cana area. They have really been uh, doing an incredible job of vaccinating people. So I would say that the eastern part uh, uh, has really put a push on on getting vaccines. But, you know, as we've seen here in Florida, uh, when you're in a coastal area, when you're in a vacation spot, and people flee to you from places that are less safe, uh, you're gonna get you're gonna get these these new variants. So uh, I don't think anybody has the answer right now on COVID. I would urge I will take the, my a minute here to urge anybody that's not been vaccinated to please get vaccinated. Uh, it it can save people's lives. Thank you. Um, Palm Beach Atlantic has a health system in place. Uh, the university has been meeting in person all through last year and this year, uh, and students are encouraged to be um, vaccinated, also taking a look at uh, checks for COVID, and then we have a system for in place to assist those who've tested positive who are sick. So it, it's been a lot of work, and but the university has been able to make it a go, even during the times when it's surged up. Well, uh, you met me, and I carry my mask, and I, I, I do mask up, and I do carry my Purell. Uh, so the, the beautiful interns, like I would be remiss if I didn't thank all the interns. Uh, let's see, Emily and Jeremy and... Miriam. Miriam, thank you very much. Uh, you have a great intern system here. And uh, again, you, you have to protect yourself and, the, and, and your loved ones because even though you're vaccinated... Uh, we all, the three of us, my husband and my daughter and I all got uh, COVID this summer just at the airport. And yeah. so. Um, may this pass. Yes. Oh, we hope so. Uh, you know, be nice to see it in the rearview mirror. Uh, we thought it would happen sooner, but it has not yet. Well, we have to all protect ourselves. Yes. Um, okay. A couple other things. Sure. As, uh, we're getting towards the end uh -huh. of it. and. Afghanistan is obviously in the news, um, and the United States is withdrawing from Afghanistan. Is it's been a hasty retreat with some attacks against deadly attacks against Americans and Afghanis uh, on the way out. So that news is in all the time, and uh, it's it should be covered. It's important. It has major repercussions, which we will not discuss here at this point. 
I wanted to take a different tact. Okay. Uh, let's talk about, um, it's easy to look at the negative aspects of American foreign policy and just say, we do this terribly, this terribly. And my area is, is American foreign policy. I have my PhDs in international relations. Oh. And you know, so I, one of my areas was taking a look at how the U.S. did it. And of course, we, we always looked at you know some of the failures of American foreign policy. But what was remarkable is some of the successes of American foreign policy. And that comes as a pleasant surprise. So I thought from your vantage point as an ambassador and having been experienced in international relations, what do you see as some of the um, sort of successes or some positive aspects about American foreign policy? Well, I think that uh, uh, you have a clear direction. No matter which president you served, I've been very lucky. I've served two presidents, a Democrat and a Repu- you know, Republican uh, president. So I like to say that I've served my country and not a particular person or a philosophy. But so I've been able to look at it both ways, one domestically at the Department of Commerce. But I would say that from what I have seen in my short time there, that uh, the the State Department does a very, very good job of giving you direction to follow, uh, a path to follow. And as I, I think I referenced it before, we every country has what's known as an integrated country strategy, wherein the administration will lay, out, lay forth your forth your policy, and you are tasked as the ambassador to carry it out. So I think we do... Um, I can't speak to different, every country, country by country, but in my case... The State Department did an incredible job. Uh, Our Bureau of Western Hemisphere in the Western Hemisphere in giving us clear directives, uh, whether it be human trafficking. I think we did a a very, very good job in helping uh, save women and girls and, and, and vulnerable people, giving us, they issue reports. They do the report uh, for... Um, uh, on, on human trafficking, they do doing business. Uh, the Commerce Department does, a, or State Department does a very good job in doing business in blank country. You know, for my case, it was doing business in the DR. And so they do help guide you. Let's say you want to go into business in the DR. They will tell you, you know, the, the, the pros, the cons. They, they do, an, I think, the Department of Justice, Treasury, uh, tracking narco-traffickers, uh, tracking money laundering. I think overall that it's, of course, it's easy to say, you know, where the mistakes are made, but let's look at the good. And the United States did so much where it, whether it's developing vaccines, whether it was administering and, and getting out, um, like I mentioned, the field hospital, Southern Command, the world is divided into seven, seven commands. Uh, we in the Dominican Republic were under a Southern Command or Southcom, but I think the United States does so much. Whether it's USAID in funding projects, in funding your project on medical, the State Department, uh, we are a very generous nation, and I think people do forget about that. How much money? I can tell you that in the DR, just in COVID response alone, last year. Uh, that we got received about $9 million in aid, and that was a little tiny Caribbean nation. So imagine how much goes out. Uh, the fight against AIDS, the, the Center for Disease Control, the CDC issuing alerts, uh, State Department, Department of Agriculture, making sure that the the products that are being sent to the United States are safe. The Justice Department helping us 
uh, with uh, the request by the Dominican government to have better structures and judicial systems. I, I, I could go on and on and on about what we do right because we do a lot of things right, and I think we should be commending, especially our de Department of Defense, people who put themselves at risk every day. We should be thanking everybody we see in uniform, thanking them for their service. And Southern Command, of course, is yes. based in Florida. Yep. Uh, so another, yep. And uh, so another, as is Central Command. Yep. So two major commands are based in the state, which is which is an amazing thing. I, you know, most people don't think that um, U.S. military operations around, at least in the Americas and in the Middle East, are operated out of out of the state. Um, one of the things that's interesting as well. And you have Hurricane Center, NOAA, which true. is based in Miami. You know, we have a oh, lot of. Uh, that's we true. Have NASA. NASA? Have, you know, thank goodness for the government. You know, people forget there's so much, but NOAA uh, yeah. gives us our hurricane alerts. Yeah, when I was a kid, I'm going to date myself. When I was a kid, I, um, I grew up in Pensacola, Florida, which oh. is still in the state, uh, in the first capital, as a matter of fact. And the, when at the, you'd go to the local drugstore, and they had this map of the southern, southeastern United States and the Caribbean. And they had lines of longitude and latitude. So you'd listen to the radio and they'd say, okay, 26 degrees north, 15 degrees west. And you'd, you'd put down a little dot on, on the map with a piece of pencil. And then over the course of the days, you would go and then everyone would get around and compare the maps to see which way it was going to go. Because we just didn't have that much information at the time. And now, you know, I have a little app called My Radar. And so I was tracking in real time the hurricane as it was going through the Gulf. And NOAA, N-O-A-A mm -hmm. dot, um, either NOAA.com or NOAA.gov, that will give you information as well. We actually launched, um, the. Uh, they actually sent us some hurricane hunters, which we launched from the southern part of uh, the Dominican Republic. And they're out there in the ocean someplace with sonar. And uh, we launched two of them. So the... the I, I'm just amazed at how much our government does. And one of the things, uh, I'll put a little international relations plug, plug here. One of the things is close ties between the Dominican Republic and the United States. Oh, yes. But you don't see a fear of invasion by the Dominican Republic. It's more friendship and um, good relationships. Excellent relationships. And, and so I, I think that's easy to overlook as well, that historically a lot of times countries that maybe were smaller were overawed by the larger country. But having been in Dominican Republic myself and you being the ambassador, you don't get that sense. Not at all. We um, I, very, very close ties. Uh, they have a very um, um, forward-leaning, uh, well-educated, English-speaking president uh, who has actually, he has two daughters in Notre Dame right now and one who graduated from American University where I graduated from. So it, the, the ties are very close. They have a very active uh, American chamber. Uh, so you've got a very, very good private partner, public partner, private public partnership, PPP. There's a lot of acronyms in the field too. Yes. Um, well, I think we've just about run towards end of time here. And I want to thank you for being on this uh, podcast. Thank you for taking time to come here, talking all things Dominican Republic and Florida and the relationship between the two. I learned a lot. And thank you again for all your support of the university. You're welcome. I love this university. And George Lemieux, without, I should just thank Senator George Lemieux for his foresight, uh, for his friendship, and for his continued efforts to educate people on uh, foreign policy. Yes, and so this is one of the, his legacies, yes. uh, it, this podcast here. So 
Thank you so much for being part of today's discussion. You're welcome. If you would like more information, uh, you may also, about the Lemieux Center, feel free to visit our website by simply searching www.pba.edu, www.pba.edu, and then Lemieux Center for Public Policy. Another way for further engagement in our policy center is through the Lemieux Center for Public Policy's Facebook page, which highlights current events in Lemieux Center news. Finally, the Lemieux Center for Public Policy would like to thank you for participating in today's Quill podcast, and we invite you to tune in for another podcast in el futuro. Gracias y hasta la próxima.